Okay, I'm here with Jamie Suskind. Uh, Jamie has written an amazing book called The Future of Politics, in which you talk about how technology is changing society, um, how digitization is, is challenging the way we live. Um, maybe you can give me some, some examples of some of the major technologies and how they are changing our world. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I look at three really important trends that I say are taking us into a phase of civilization that's quite different from anything that's come before. The first is very simple. It's the idea of increasingly capable systems. Yeah. Uh, Non-human systems that can do things which we previously thought that only humans could do. Uh, in many cases, they can do them as well as us or better than us, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's mimicking human speech, translating uh, languages, diagnosing cancers, drafting legal documents, uh, playing games. Across a whole range of admittedly fairly narrow domains, you have systems, some people call them artificial intelligence systems, which can uh, do things which we really didn't think, at least in our time, would ever be done by non-human systems. The second trend is that it's not just that systems are becoming more capable, it's that they're becoming more ubiquitous. Mm. So in the past, it was very easy to distinguish between technology and not technology. So, you know, for 40 or 50 years ago, computers were vast things the size of rooms. And for most of our lives, you and I, you know, the, the dominant paradigm has been the keyboard, the mouse and the desktop screen. Perhaps more lately, the glass slab of the smartphone or the iPad. But in the future, it said technology is going to be dispersed into the world around us in objects and artifacts which we never previously thought of as technology. Mm -hmm. So in our private spaces and smart homes in the forms of appliances and utilities um, and in our architecture and in public spaces with smart cities, uh, dense with sensors and connectivity and processing power. So that this line between online and offline, real space and cyberspace, is one that will become less important and less meaningful as time goes on. Mm. So systems are becoming more capable and they're becoming more integrated mm. into the world around us. Trend three, which is related to the first, true, uh, first two, is what I call increasingly quantified society. And this is very simply the idea that we generate more data now every couple of hours than we did from the dawn of time until 2003. Mm -hmm. And what that means when that data is caught and captured and sorted uh, is that those who own it and control it have an insight into our lived experience beyond anything that anyone in the past could ever have dreamed of mm -hmm. uh, into what we think, what we care about, how we feel, where we go, what we buy who we speak to, what we say, what we do on any given day, who we associate with. We leave a trail of these things, which offers a window into our soul, uh, both individually and collectively, that dwarfs anything that the philosophers or the kings or the priests of the past could have dreamed of. Mm -hmm. And I look at these three trends, all of which are accelerating, mm -hmm. and it seems to me unlikely that we are going to be unchanged in the way that we live together as a result of them. We've never had to live alongside such powerful mm. non-human systems. We've never known what it's like to be surrounded by technology which has never switched off. Yeah. We've never been in a world where um, our lives are datafied mm. to such an extent. And 
what this book is about is an effort to think uh, about the next steps, about what we need to do and how we need to theorise and think and respond to these changes, which could be a significant... So what do you thing. see as some of the, the major impacts on how we live or how, we, how society is run? Yes. What are some of the, maybe the, the good things and maybe some of the not so good things and potential dangers? Well, the headline for me is that the digital is political. So instead of looking at these technologies just as consumers, we need to, or as capitalists, we need to look at them as citizens mm. and ask exactly the question you just asked. And the one line answer that I normally give is that those who control and own the most powerful digital systems in the future will increasingly have a great deal of control over the rest of us. Mm. And in a sense, that's not a particularly controversial statement. But the, the next question is, who's that going to be? Mm. And uh, right now, the two major beneficiaries politically and socially of uh, these technological changes are not ordinary people, but rather states which can use uh, these technologies for surveillance and enforcement of rules and large corporations, particularly tech companies, but mm. others which may not be tech companies, but would use a lot of tech and therefore are yeah. able to affect the way that we live. Um, and a lot of this book is devoted to answering the question you just asked, which is how do these technologies impact society? But just to, you know, to skip through it very quickly, my first argument is that technologies exert power so that First of all, they contain rules that the rest of us have to follow, like a self-driving car that won't go over the speed limit or a social media function uh, that won't let you post a particular type of speech uh, or, a particular, or a particular form of speech, mm. if it's over 280 characters on Twitter or whatever, whatever it is. So those who write those rules increasingly have a degree of power in society. Mm -hmm. Secondly, by gathering data about us, other people have power over us. Firstly, because they know what makes us tick. They know our carrots and sticks. Mm -hmm. It's the basis of almost all online advertising and a lot of political advertising now as well. Um, so it said, for instance, the Cambridge Analytica and the Trump campaign had um, a couple of thousand data points about 200 million different Americans. And that enabled them to project and advertise an image of the candidate that was tailored to the preferences and prejudices and biases, not just at a kind of state level or even at a ward level, but sometimes even at an individual level, so it's claimed. So the more data that's gathered about us, the easier it is for us to persuade and influence mm -hmm. and manipulate us. But my other view on this is that just knowing that data is being gathered about us is likely to make us change our behaviour in itself. Mm -hmm. It's what Bentham and Foucault referred to as the games, the idea that you change your behaviour when you're being watched mm -hmm. and when you're conscious of being watched. I actually don't think we are just now yet as conscious as we should be. And I, I believe that lots of people don't understand the level of surveillance that is going on and therefore they feel like they can be completely honest. Exactly. Which is quite dangerous. Well, it's, on, it's problematic for them, particularly people in you know, my generation, you know, you might have done something stupid or foolish when you were younger in the same way that your parents would have done, but it comes back to haunt you in the job interview. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of gotchas with politicians who happens to be young during the time of the first social media mm. eruptions. And of course there are photos out there or stupid things they've said. And uh, if there's a kind of log of your life, that's going to include the good and the bad things, the private conversations you didn't ever want anyone to hear. Mm. Um, and yes, but I think once we become more cognizant of the fact that we are always being watched, I think people will start changing their behavior 
without even being told to. And that's a kind of power in itself, yeah. uh, which is subtle but important. Uh, and the third major form of power is what I call perception control. We all of us rely on third parties to tell us about what's going on out there in the world, mm -hmm. beyond our immediate sensory perceptions. And increasingly, the third parties we rely on are mediated by digital technology. Mm -hmm. So when we get our news from a, a news feed, or when we go out and search for information using a search engine, we are at the mercy of those technologies who decide which very small slice of reality we are going to be presented with. Mm -hmm. And which slice of reality we're presented with is important because it determines our sense of what matters, what's happening, what's mm -hmm. right and what's wrong. And you don't need to be making a, a kind of conspiratorial claim that, uh, that certain forms of news are being promoted or demoted or hidden, although I'm sure in some cases that's true, just to acknowledge that those who own and control the technologies that filter our perception of the world are very, very powerful because mm. they shape our innermost feelings and our soul as well as our collective understandings of what matters. Completely. So I start with power and then I, power sort of cascades on to other um, simple political concepts like democracy. You know, I look at how changes in the way that we're deliberating online are changing the democratic process. Mm. Um, I look at questions of freedom. What does it mean to live in a world where the rules are set, um, not often not by states, but by private companies, mm. and often in ways that aren't necessarily liberty maximizing. Uh, and, and finally, justice. What's it going to be like living in a world where your access to important things like jobs or insurance or credit might well be mediated by algorithms, mm. which are themselves not necessarily as fair as morality or the law would like them to be. You know, we already have face recognition systems which don't see people of colour because they've only been trained on white faces, mm. or voice recognition systems which can't hear people with non-standard accents because mm. they've only been trained on those with standard accents. Uh, and we know all about systems relating, you know, to criminal punishment and the like, which stereotype individuals um, and the, 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 the question that I always, or the, the point that I always try to ram home is that previously these kinds of problems have been seen as engineering problems or um, at, the, at, at most kind of corporate problems, but I see them as political problems mm. and the, the software engineers are social engineers whether they know it or not. Yeah, absolutely. And quite often they don't. <laughs> usually yeah. they don't. And usually when you tell them that, they don't like to hear it. Mm. No, exactly. I agree. So what would you say are some of the key messages that you would like to, to send out to anyone listening to this? What, what, I think this is a, a call to action somehow, or at least raising awareness. What would you like people to, to do more of, less of? Well, uh, <laughs> I get asked this question a lot, and often I'm asked, you know, what can I do? What can we as individuals do? And the truth is I'm kind of pessimistic about what what any individual can do. So yes, you can improve your digital hygiene, mm. but if you leave Facebook, for instance, it doesn't matter because Facebook has 2 billion other members. If you stop using Google and start using DuckDuckGo, it doesn't track your data in the same way. It doesn't matter because 60,000 other people are using Google every second. Mm. So I see the problems thrown up by technology. This isn't a cause for pessimism generally, but it is a call for clarity 
the problems thrown up by technology are not problems that can be solved by individuals changing their behavior. Mm. They're problems that can only be solved through collective means and collective mechanisms. The most powerful and obvious of which is the state. Mm. If you want the rules of the game to be changed for everyone, then law and legislation and regulation is the only way to do it. Mm. At the same time, we should always be wary of giving even more power to the state, particularly when it comes to digital technology. So that's a balance we have to strike. Yeah. But I'm quite confident in saying it's a balance we've not yet struck. Mm. And um, I, I know it's trendy not to have faith in politics, but we're going to have to have some faith in politics if we're going to make sure that we don't live in a world where we are fundamentally buffeted around by forces that are effectively invisible and out of our control because they are con concentrated in private hands. Mm. And that's not to say that tech companies or anything are evil, because I don't believe that, but they are human. Mm. And that's why we design, you know, so are politicians. So we design political systems that hold them to account for when they slip up. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that everyone who works in a tech firm is has the wrong motives, but in fact, if you are operating in the commercial sector, you're more likely to be engineering your systems to make money than mm. to serve the public good. And mm. there's nothing wrong with that until you're, someone, is, someone changes the incentives. Completely agree. So uh, it is a call to action, but it's more, it's, it's a call to action at a, at a level which will make some people uncomfortable because I think particularly in the United States, people are very skeptical about the state mm. trying to correct issues that are thrown up by private ordering, but mm. I think it's necessary. Very good. Nice way to end this. Thank you. Thank you. So anyone, have a look at this book. It's a great read and hopefully you enjoy it and, and make up your own mind on some of the, the future of politics and society and how technology is going to change this. So thank you very much, Jen. Thank you.